so that we would behold wonderful things from his word as we have already read. And to do that, let's turn to Psalm 139. The Psalms play many purposes in God's plan, but one of those is comfort. One of those primary purposes is comfort. And this is indeed one of the great Psalms of comfort in all the scripture. In this matchless psalm, David speaks of five attributes or actions. There'll be a bit of both. Five attributes or actions of God that bring comfort to our souls in times of uncertainty and trouble. And just to get them out right up front, let me go ahead and list those attributes and actions for you. The attributes of God begin with, in this psalm, God's omniscience. And we'll call that the comfort of total familiarity. God's omniscience. Secondly, God's omnipresence, the comfort of perpetual presence. Thirdly, God's creative sovereignty, the comfort of perfect design and perfect order. Then we will move to God's justice, the comfort of sure retribution for the wicked. And then God's shepherding, the comfort, if you will, of divine counseling sessions in which God exposes the sins of our hearts. You didn't get all those down, don't worry. We'll be going through them as we move through the psalm. Let me give you this introduction. As I studied this psalm a number of uh, months ago or even a couple of years ago to preach for my own church, um, I was struck as I began to work on Psalm 139 how in one sense this psalm is a summation of all of David's other psalms. You may not have never thought of that, but I think it's true in a sense. David's psalms are so varied and uh, so many that it would be impossible to sum them all up in one psalm, but virtually all the major themes that David covers in his psalms are brought together in this one psalm. And perhaps without ever consciously registering it, that's one of the reasons we treasure this psalm so highly. Let me illustrate what I mean. Perhaps the most dominant theme in David's Psalms is worshipful wonder, this odd wonder at God, at his majesty, at his glory, but also at the compassionate care of God. For example, in Psalm 40, David wrote, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts towards us. There is none, he says, to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, of your thoughts, God, they would be too numerous to count. Psalm 139 echoes that theme, doesn't it? In fact, it uses some of that very very terminology. Lifting up God's awesome shepherding care for his people. Equally significant in David's Psalms is the theme of God's deep personal knowledge of the redeemed. Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden and the God who is our salvation. And in Psalm 139, indeed, you find David exalting God, who is familiar with all of our ways and leads us with an intimate knowledge and concern. You know, God's protection from darkness and doubt and fear is also a regular theme in David's Psalms. For example, in Psalm 34, verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Nowhere is that reality of God's protection and in the midst of fearful situations expressed with, with a more stirring poetic excellence, though, than in Psalm 139. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Another dominant theme in David's Psalms is the reality of God's justice, especially in the early Psalms in the Psalter. Later on, David says in Psalm 68, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered and let them flee before him. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. And of course, that theme, as you know, is highlighted in Psalm 139 as well. And when you're making a list of the dominant themes in David's songs, don't forget to add the matter of avoiding sin or confessing sin. David often expounds on that theme or double theme as well. We know his penitential psalms, psalms like Psalm 32 and 38 and 51. But you might forget that David also regularly expressed a desire to be held back from sin so he could avoid sin rather than have to repent from it later. Psalm 19, verse 13, David prayed to God, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then 
I will be blameless. Well, it's no surprise then that David would write at the end of this great psalm, Psalm 139, the familiar words, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. You could translate that any idolatrous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so let me suggest that one of the reasons we as believers in Jesus Christ treasure this psalm, Psalm 139, so greatly, why we hold it so dear to our hearts, is there is a sense in which it is a summation of all of other David's other psalms. In this psalm, he faces fear, darkness, and sin. In it, he laments the ferocity and the destruction of the power of wicked men and women in his world. In it, he exalts the wonderful majesty and the close, intimate shepherding of God. It is, in that sense, then, all of David's best rolled into one and given to us in one great psalm. And so with that introduction, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the text and discover the five attributes and actions of God that bring comfort to our souls in times of uncertainty and fear and trouble. And I don't think I need to do a lot to develop the reality that this would be something that applies today in our own lives. Attribute number one is God's omniscience. God's omniscience, we'll call it the comfort of total familiarity. Total familiarity. Verse 1. O Lord, he says, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Now, you're probably familiar with the old saying that says, ignorance is bliss. And I suppose there's times that it's true, but as you well know, ignorance can also be fearful and not blissful at all. In fact, many times our greatest fears are because of our ignorance. We fear because we don't know the future. We fear that our children won't remember what we've taught them when they go out to face the world. We fear because we lack information when making important financial or business decisions. Well, we might be afraid in many times and in many cases. Can I tell you, God is never afraid. God is never afraid because God always has all the information that is not only necessary, all the information there is. In fact, God always has all the information about you. And that's the point of this text, isn't it? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You've scrutinized my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. This is clearly not just a celebration of God's omniscience generally. This is a celebration of God's comforting familiarity with David and with us as those who love God through Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. God is familiar with you and he knows all your ways, all your decisions, all your fears, and indeed here David says all your routines. Sitting or standing, God knows them and everything in between. Your paths when you go out of the house to run to the store or when you stay home, what time you take a nap in the afternoon, God knows those things too. In fact, it's actually a literary device, a figure of speech called a merism. A merism is when two opposite or two extremely different things stand for everything in between. They, they stand for themselves, of course, but then everything in between. And, and think about what you know of Psalm 139. Activity or rest, sitting or standing, thoughts or words, going out or laying down and taking a nap. God knows all those things, and indeed, the point is he knows them, and he knows everything in between as well. Now, God's total familiarity with all your ways might stir up fear in someone who has a guilty conscience. 
It's certainly true that all of our deeds, all of our words, all of our thoughts are known to God. And if you are here this morning and you're living in sin, then you need to know that God does know what you are doing and you cannot hide that from him. And I urge you to repent and to lay that in front of God so that what, as the saying goes, what we uncover before God, he is graciously going to cover over with the blood of Christ. If you're living in sin, repent and turn from your sin today. It is true that it was absurd for David who celebrates this God who knows his thought and his word and his rising up and his laying down. It was absurd for David to imagine that he could hide his adultery with Bathsheba, that he could hide that from God. There's a convicting convicting component to God's omnipresence and his omniscience. We'll get to omnipresence in a moment. There's a convicting aspect to God's omniscience. Here I think David has comfort in mind. Look at verses 5 and 6. I think he has comfort in mind in this psalm. He says, God, you have enclosed me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. I mean, imagine a father laying his hand on his child's shoulder, his small child, to guide him through a crowded place so that he doesn't get lost or jostled in the crowd. David says, God, you have enclosed me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. And the fact that God would put his hand on my shoulder to guide me through the crowd, that knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't even begin to think about it. I cannot attain to it. This is the comfort of God's total familiarity. God knows you, and God knows your ways. In the wonderful words of Elihu in Job 36, verse 5, Elihu says, God is mighty. Let's not question that. Let's establish that. God is mighty, but he does not despise any. He adds, God is mighty in the strength of understanding. Isn't it good to know that when you don't even understand yourself, that God understands you? That's the idea here. God uses his incomparable, absolute knowledge of you and of your ways to comfort you and to guide you. He keeps, says David in Psalm 56, he keeps all your tears in a bottle of remembrance. Here, David uses a different figure of speech. He says, God scrutinizes or sifts your ways, verse 3, You scrutinize my path. The word in Hebrew is actually, you winnow my path. I'll explain it. You winnow my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. That word scrutinize or search out, as I said, is the Hebrew word for winnowing grain. Winnowing was the process in which a farmer would toss the harvested heads of wheat up into the air, allowing the afternoon wind to whisk away the hulls and then the heavier kernels would fall back to the ground to be collected to be milled for flour to make bread. God says, David, winnows your ways. He knows your ways. He sifts your ways. When it comes to his knowledge of you, his knowledge of your personal difficulties and joys and challenges, there are no husks in God's grain. There are no lumps in his flour. There are no pebbles in his plaster. Use whatever figure of speech you want, but it all comes out to the fact that God has a perfect, complete, and refined knowledge of you as one who loves Jesus Christ. In other words, in this God, the God who knows you so well, in this God, loneliness is lost. Loneliness is lost in God, the God who knows you like this. Moreover, it means that God knows just how to help you in every circumstance. Every circumstance. He knows just what you need. He knows you just well enough, perfectly, in fact. So he knows your every need, your every situation. There is nothing that he has not seen, nothing that is beyond his knowledge. You remember the great words of Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Because we are now in Christ, it is safe to come near to the dangerous holy God. And we can draw near to him. We can do that with confidence. And we come before Christ so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This God does not give just a a, a kind of generic sort of grace. This God gives you the grace you need exactly at your moment because he knows you and he knows your need. 
And he knows you whether you need it sitting down or standing up, right? Or driving around or taking a nap. For David, God's knowledge of him issued in comfort and help and protection. Again, verse 5, you have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. You have your hand on my shoulder, God, to guide me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. In Psalm 3, verse 3, David said a very similar thing. You are a shield about me, he said. In Psalm 34, 7, David said, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The word enclosed or hemmed in is the word used when an army encircled a city to besiege it. And that would normally be a very terrifying thing. But when Yahweh of hosts, when the Lord of armies encircles you, what you need to understand as a believer, all the swords and spears are pointing out, not in. They are pointing out to protect you, not in to assail you. David found God's personal intimate knowledge and protection just to be mind-blowing. The God of the universe would put his hand on my shoulder to guide me through the crowd? Yes, indeed. In the words of Psalm 8, what is man that you take thought of him? That's the human race. Now it's what am I as an individual, as a speck of dust, that God, you would give this kind of attention, this kind of love and care for me? What kind of God must you be? This is the God of whom Jesus, the Son speaking of the Father, whom Jesus said in Matthew 6, your Father knows what you need before you ask. Well, he's reading your thoughts from afar, David said. Of course he knows. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, said Jesus, so do not worry. Do not worry about tomorrow. So while we often wallow in fear because of ignorance, what we never need to fear is that God might be ignorant of us in our situation. In fact, we find in his intimate, exhaustive, precise knowledge the comfort of total familiarity. But God's omniscience is only the first of the five attributes that we're going to see laid out, attributes and actions of God in this psalm. A second attribute is God's omnipresence, the comfort of God's perpetual presence. Verse 7, David writes, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will still be on my shoulder. Your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. Even without a full New Testament understanding of the Trinity, David knew that the Spirit of God who had hovered over the waters there in Genesis 1 on the first day of creation, he knew that God's Spirit hovered over him, David, wherever he went. And again, he uses that literary technique called a merism. You have two extremes, heaven and then the grave. That's what Sheol meant. He said, if I ascend to the heavens, well, you're there, God. And if I spread my blanket roll in the grave, that's what Sheol means. If I spread my blanket roll in the grave, even there in the family burial cave under the earth, you're there too, God. And of course, he's everywhere in between. In fact, what David did here is he listed out the top five places that he might be able to hide from God or more accurately that he might accidentally disappear from God's sight. And he starts with the astral heavens. The heavens, could I, could I be lost by God there? And the answer is no. In fact, if you got in a rocket ship and you traveled a million times the speed of light and you did that for a billion years, when you got out, God would be there to greet you. In fact, he would have been with you all along, wouldn't he? David says, if I could hide behind a star somewhere on the far side of the galaxy, would I be hidden from God's shepherding care? And his answer is, absolutely not. And David says, if I climbed into a coffin and I sealed the lid behind me, screwed in the screws, when I finish the task and lay down my screwdriver and look around, boom, there he is. There's God. He's there too. 
fact, the Hebrew is so much more dramatic than our English versions suggest. David says, if I spread my bed in the grave, behold, you, I turn around and you're there too, God. In short, when you think of that merism thing, in short, there is no height and there is no depth that can separate us from God. And yes, I think you're now starting to understand where Paul probably shoplifted some of his good ideas at the end of Romans 8. Paul normally steals stuff from Isaiah, but this time, I think in Romans 8, he stole it from David. There is neither height nor depth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No distance, no height, no depth, not east or west can separate David or you and I as believers in Jesus Christ from God's care and God's presence. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell on the remotest part of the sea, I think that's South Africa, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God's presence is not defined by lines of latitude and longitude. He is an infinite spirit being and he is uncontained and uncontainable. He is beyond dimensions. In Jeremiah 23, God asks, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? And then the second rhetorical question in that verse is, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And David's answer to those two questions would be no and yes. No, I can't hide from you, God, even if I hitch a ride with the sun when it rises. And yes, you do fill the earth, so even if I cross a thousand oceans, I will still be with you. Now, as with God's omniscience, God's omnipresence can be a bit of a two-edged sword. There is a conviction here as you think about God's omnipresence. If Jonah had been meditating on this psalm, and he could have been because David lived over 100 years before Jonah, if Jonah had been meditating on Psalm 139, he would never have tried to flee to Tarshish at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea. Nor would Ananias and Sapphira have imagined in Acts chapter 5 that their inner room would be a safe place to work out their scheme to defraud God. Adam wouldn't have tried to hide behind a bush in the garden. Nor would Demas, in love with this present world, Demas would not have tried to flee to Thessalonica as if he would be safe from God's justice and discipline or chastisement there. In this case, though, I think David is again emphasizing comfort, not conviction. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. I like to say it this way. For the omnipresent God, distance is no barrier in regard to his care for you and, let me add, in his care for those you love. We live in South Africa, one ocean and two continents away from our children who are both here in America. And you know what? This is a place my wife and I come for comfort because we know that God can shepherd us in South Africa, but America, I don't know if God's there. Right? I don't know if he works there or not, and I come to this psalm, and I find out that indeed he does. God cared for Joseph in Egypt just as he'd cared for him in Canaan. God cared for Daniel in Babylon just as he'd cared for him as a young boy in Judah. God cared for David himself in Moab and Philistia just as he had in Israel. Distance is no barrier to God's care, and you know what? Neither is darkness. Neither is darkness. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will become night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. Now, let's admit it, darkness can be scary. Nobody wants to say that, but, but darkness can be scary. Even in the familiar confines of your own home, darkness can make you scurry down the passage to your bedroom or pull the covers over your head at night. Right? 
And David says, not even impenetrable, inky blackness, not even that can cause God to lose his sight of you. Why? Darkness and light are alike to him. And whether you take this as literal night or a figure of speech for dark trials, and I could argue for either, the fact is darkness is no barrier to God. You remember when Jeremiah's enemies threw him into an abandoned cistern, an underground water tank, the gloom of that prison was no barrier to God's vision, and God rescued Jeremiah from that. Or how about this example? Paul and Silas, when they sang songs at midnight in the innermost cell of the Philippian jail, let me suggest to you that Psalm 139 was probably one of the songs they sang. I mean, Paul, even though he wasn't converted as a young man, probably had the Psalms memorized. That would be typical of a man like Paul in the training that he had. And and Silas, maybe an Old Testament believer even before the coming of Christ, those men knew the Psalms. And don't you think that singing a song about the God for whom darkness and light are alike, Don't you think singing a song about the God who sifts your ways, the God who even if you cross an ocean, you're still in his presence, the God who will deal with the enemies who just unjustly beat you with sticks, don't you think singing Psalm 139 would have comforted their heart in that dark moment? I think so. And then we move from that as New Testament believers. We, we move to the New Testament. We think of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in the Gospel of John is called the light of the world. Remember that he is the one in the radiance of his face, all shadows are banished. The sunshine of his face, all darkness is rolled back. Times what appears to us to be darkness is to borrow another figure of speech from the Psalms as just the shadow of God's protecting wings. Whatever the case, we don't need to fear. We have the affirming comfort of total familiarity. We have the affirming comfort of the perpetual presence of God, and that's combined with his piercing searchlight vision that can find us no matter where we are, even in America. Now, in fact, in the next set of verses, in the next set of verses, you might never have made this connection, but I think you must. In the next set of verses, David identifies a very specific, very dark place, a very specific dark place where God's eyes had no penetrating and finding David, and that was his mother's womb. You probably always stopped at verse 12 and then not just kind of carried on. There's a connection between verse 12 and verse 13. For darkness and light are alike to you and says, let me give you a dark place where God knew all about me. For you formed my inward parts and you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very, very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. It's all just poetry, right? Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. More than that, he says, and in your book were all written the days ordained for me before one of them came to be. What David does here in these verses is he mixes together God's creative power and God's sovereignty, so let's do what David did, right? And we'll call this third point the comforting attribute of God of his creative sovereignty, God's creative sovereignty. The comfort of perfect design in regard to our physical bodies and perfect order in regard to our lives. God's creative sovereignty. Now, when I read this verse, I instantly think of Ecclesiastes 11.5, where in the pre-scientific era, Solomon wrote these words, you do not know the path of the wind, and meteorologists are still trying to figure it out, right? Um, You do not know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman. 
Now, today, geneticists and research physicians are fully capable of giving us an intricate explanation of how a baby is formed in the womb from the seed of a man and a seed of a woman, and at the end of it all, they talk for two or three hours. You might be tempted to say, you still really don't know, do you, right? Because the truth is, we can describe the process, but only God can do it. We can describe it, but only God can do it. And David found comfort in the fact that even there in that darkest of places, even there in his mother's womb, God providentially oversaw every single part of that nine-month construction project. Piece by piece, bit by bit, God assembled David, and it didn't matter how dark it was. God could do it. The place of assembly is poetically called here the secret or the protected place or the depths of the earth. It's just poetry. From the initial conjunction of two cells, which is a full human being in embryonic form, God wove David together like a master weaver creating a beautiful tapestry. And David responded with praise to God for the mind-blowing complexity and order and design that he saw in his physical body. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it full well. David, the athlete warrior kind of guy. I mean, this is a guy who takes down lions and bears with his bare hands, right? He looks at his body, and he says, this is amazing. This is an amazing Amazing creation of God. I mean, think about it. Our senses, things like touch and taste and sight and hearing. How many components of your body and your brain must be working together, functioning in perfect harmony for just your senses to work? For your brains to interpret the messages that are sent to to your brain regarding the environment. Nutrition, filtration, Reproduction, communication, genetics, immune systems, the inimitable grace of the muscular movements of the athlete or the fine motor skills of the artist. All of them testify to God's incomparable design. But you know, it wasn't just God's design of David's body there in the darkness, darkness no barrier for God. It wasn't just that that caused David to just praise God with awe. It was also God's sovereignty over what he, David, did with his life all the days of his life. Verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Darkness didn't interfere. You put me together like Lego blocks, you know, bit by bit. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet, there was not even one of those days. You know my words before I speak them. You knew my days before they happened. The order of God's creative sovereignty extended beyond the formation of life in the womb to life itself. All of David's days, his every blink, his every heartbeat, his every breath, all of that, they were all ordained by God. They were all written in God's sovereign book of history before they happened. They were formed by God's finger. And the verb that David uses here would suggest to the Hebrew mind, God shaping his days like a potter shapes clay. God shaped every day of David's life with an exquisite care and an exquisite craftsmanship. So in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our difficulties, as we look at that, you ask and see, can say, can God see me? And the answer is yes, even in the womb. Does God know you? Yes. In fact, he assembled you, and more than that, he inscribed in his book every hour and every minute of your life. And you think about that, and you start to register how many trillions of thoughts must God have had about you and me to put together every minute of our lives and to shepherd and care for us in the midst of this life. Verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. You're thinking about me. I cannot believe it. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. 
And when I wake, I am still with you. If you drove to the coast here in our lovely state of North Carolina and you went down to the beach and you picked up, scooped up a handful of sand and you counted every one of those grains of sand and then you scooped up a second and a third and a fourth handful of sand. If you emptied the beaches of the world counting every grain of sand, David says you still would not be at the total number of God's thoughts of those whom he loves in Jesus Christ. You would still not be at the number of God's thoughts of you. Commentators wrestle over the last line of verse 18, where David says, when I awake, I'm still with you. Um, I'm just kind of a simple guy, and so I take a simple answer to that. I think David started writing this song at night, and he fell asleep counting all those grains of sand, right? (laughs) And so he wakes up in the morning, and what does he say? I am awake now, and you're still with me. In fact, you didn't leave me in the night. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter whether it's sunrise or sunset. When I wake, I'm still with you. He he says a similar thing in Psalm 3, verse 5. I laid down and slept, and I awoke. I wasn't dead when I woke up, Absalom's rebellion, right? Because the Lord sustains me. Or Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. You alone, Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. I wake. And I'm still with you, God. Neither distance, nor darkness, nor duration, nor drowsiness can separate us from the God who loves us in Christ. And so David found comfort in God's omniscience. He found comfort in God's omnipresence. He found comfort in God's creative sovereignty. The fourth comforting attribute for God is God's, or for David, is God's justice. Here David turns an abrupt corner. In fact, I think some people would want to write these verses out of Psalm 139, but they're very important because we need comfort in this area too. If you know David's Psalms, especially the early ones in the Psalter, you you understand God's justice is a major theme of David's songs. And there's a very simple reason for that. David was a man who had wide experience and his wide experience had caused him to see way too much evil. He lived in a society where evil was even more out there, more in your face, more aggressive, and more obvious than our society today. And therefore, his righteous soul found comfort as he looked at that evil, that unrestrained evil in his world, he found comfort in God's justice. That's attribute number four, the certainty of just retribution for the wicked. Rather than to spiral down into cynicism about the world and human nature, and rather than adopt barbaric forms of revenge, when David was faced by the evils of men, he found comfort and hope in God's justice. God will surely give retribution to the wicked. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think I understand David in these words better the last few years in our world. As I look around our world, there are some times when I would say, God, I wish that you would slay the wicked. I wish that you would bring your retributive justice now. It's okay to delay because then more people will be saved. But you know what? This kind of evil that I'm watching, it needs to be punished. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you, God. They do that wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. David is looking at the evil in his world saying, God, I wish that you would judge it, and I know you will, but I wish you wouldn't wait. This is not some kind of personal vindictiveness or hot-headed revenge on David's part. This is a plea of a righteous man who's just seen far too much evil in his life. Because you remember David could and indeed did express kindness and grace towards his enemies. Don't forget that when you read this. David's grace towards Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, the grandson of King Saul, 
someone whom any other king in David's era would have just executed out of hand, David's grace to that young man is one of the highlights of David's personal history. In the same way, David did not cut off the head of Shammai, that guy who cursed him and threw stones at David when David was fleeing Jerusalem during Absalom's rebellion. You see, once Abigail sensibly restrained David from taking revenge on her foolish husband Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, David generally rejected personal revenge. Don't forget that reality. However, that did not mean that the violence and injustice of David's world did not torment and anger his righteous soul. I mean, think for example. If you had been one of the United States soldiers who had liberated a Nazi death camp at the end of World War II, Ravensbrück or Buchenwald or whatever, if you had been one of the liberators of one of those death camps, when you walked through the gates of that camp and you saw the corpses, both dead and living, there in that camp, don't you think you would have had two responses? One response would have been, please save these people and even those who have done it to them. And I think you would have also said, oh, Lord, would you please slay the wicked? How can can people do this to, to others who have been created in the image of God? Would you please slay the wicked? Please give them their just due. And make no mistake about it, when you think about the wicked that David refers to here, just how excessively wicked they were. If you track that word wicked through David's Psalms, you'll find that these men were atheists who denied God's existence or agnostics who denied God's significance. They imagined God to be blind to their evil deeds and therefore they taunted God and they taunted the helpless victims of their crimes. They ate God's people like bread, according to Psalm 14 and 53. It's a figure of speech, thankfully. David compares them to raging lions, fire-breathing dragons, and poisonous snakes. They had no fear of God. They planned wickedness while lolling on their beds at night, and they consistently repaid your good with their evil. Their tongues were like razor blades. They worshipped money, and on the individual level, they were murderers. On the corporate, international level, they were warmongers. Now, David says in Psalm 37.1, do not fret yourself because of evildoers. And he can say that because of this reality. He understands that God will punish evildoers. God hates the evil of these men, and David embraces that godlike hatred. As king, you can understand that David had a longing that God would erase the moral vermin in Israel who were preying incessantly on his fellow Israelites. Because we live in a society where, until recently, a society that is not constantly at war, a society where there have been social restraints, so widespread, rapacious violence, the sort of stuff you see in the book of Judges. Uh, As Americans, we have not experienced that. On the whole, we have not experienced that. We lived in a society where those restraints were in place, and now they seem to be no longer in place. Because of that, because we don't understand what, for example, the book of Judges was like, we have failed to understand David's plea to God here to judge the wicked. But David had seen and personally lived through the end of the days of the judges. He had lived in the chaos of Saul's reign. He experienced seven and a half years of civil war before he ruled over the entirety of the nation. And therefore, as both citizen and as king, David longed for God to remove the wicked because he had seen just way too much evil. In Psalm 139, David is not promoting vengeance or an unwillingness to love or to forgive your enemies. David has showed himself at various points, I mentioned some of them, very patient, very willing to forgive. You see, we can make a distinction between virulent personal hatred and a genuine righteous indignation at sin. You know what? David could too. And that's what David is doing here. He took comfort in God's justice, asking that it would be expressed now, not later. 
You know, the truth is, every time you pray for Jesus Christ to come back, you're basically praying these verses. You may have never made that connection, but what will Jesus do when he comes back? He's going to slay the wicked. He's going to wipe out the evil of the earth. And you know what? They're going to deserve it. Revelation, one of the angels said, you gave them blood to drink and they deserve it. That's a terrifying description of our world. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. His righteous heart is oppressed by the evil around him. We're starting to understand that, I think, in our own country. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. I am imitating God's own hatred of evil and those who do it. They have become my enemies. Yes, I love my enemies and I preach the gospel to them. Absolutely, but I also know that God is going to judge them and I must say I anticipate the day. Now, God's justice, his sure retribution for evil is a legitimate and necessary comfort, but There's one more thing to add here, and it's an action, not an attribute. David is humble enough. His heart is sensitive enough to realize that not all the evil in his world was out there. In fact, a fair share of it was in here. It was in his own heart, wasn't it? In fact, he had on at least one miserable occasion been one of those grasping criminals stealing both his neighbor's wife and his neighbor's life. And only God's immeasurable, unexpected, and utterly undeserved grace had intervened so that David could be forgiven. Therefore, the final attribute or action of God that David found comfort in was God's shepherding. God's shepherding. David sought and found comfort in, if you will, divine counseling sessions. Those moments when God took his word written and David's conscience and intersected them to show David his sin. David longed for that shepherding intervention of God. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if, there's, there is, see if there is any hurtful, and I said you could translate it possibly idolatrous, if there is any hurtful or idolatrous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. See, David understood that the evil within was no more to be tolerated than the evil without. Now, the pattern of David's life had been righteousness. We know that. He is a man after God's own heart in spite of his monumental failures. At times, such as Psalm 32, 38, and and 51, rather, David showed that indeed he was guilty and desperately needed divine prodding to come to God to be forgiven. Don't be like the horse, no the mule, he says in Psalm 32, that will not be led to water. Go to the springs of the water of life, plunge in your muzzle and drink deep and be forgiven by God. David also, though, took comfort in the fact that God would counsel and shepherd him and hopefully hold him back from those sins so that he wouldn't have to confess and wouldn't have to repent. I mean, it's better to avoid sin than to have to repent from it, isn't it? That's his prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He's saying to God, please ignite my conscience. You know the verses like Hebrews 4, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are laid open and laid bare to him, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And God knows all our sin. Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind. David is appealing to that reality. He is appealing here to that reality. He had known the way of the transgressor, and he knew it was hard. Therefore, he longed for God in the words of Psalm 19.13, keep back your servants from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. That was David's prayer to end this psalm. He takes comfort in God's gracious shepherding. So, we live in an upside-down 
crazy season of life. It feels like to me about two years ago, somebody put us in a tumble dryer and pushed the on button, right? We live in a crazy season of life in our world. Uncertainties and fears abound. I don't know what yours are, right? But the question would need to be asked, where can we as believers in Jesus Christ, where can we as God's people find comfort? And the answer is where we always have, where we always have in God. As Paul described him, the father of mercies and the God of all, do you know the word? All comforts. The father of mercies and the God of all comforts. We go where we've always gone. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In God, we find the comfort of total familiarity, the comfort of perpetual presence, the comfort of perfect design and perfect order. We find in God the comfort of a sure retribution of the wicked. And we find in God the comfort of the kind of shepherding that exposes the evil of our own hearts so that we might walk in the ways of Christ to his glory and by his grace. To sum it all up, neither darkness nor distance can separate us from the great shepherding care of our God Father, Son, and Spirit. Those who love His Son, Jesus Christ, the Father, shepherds, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, neither darkness nor distance can separate us from their care. Let's pray. Lord, there are many great and fearful challenges in this world. And some in this congregation are facing very difficult things right now. There's the world generally, Pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, some who I know by name, who are perhaps under threat of death right now. Lord, we pray that you care for them, that you would give this kind of shepherding care, that you would encompass them behind and before, that you would put your hand on their shoulder and that they would know that you love them and that you care for them and you shepherd them. Lord, we're not in the midst of a war situation in a literal sense, figuratively perhaps, but we, Lord, need your shepherding care too. And so I pray that your spirit would give to each of these dear people here just the right package of grace this morning to comfort their hearts. And in the end, it's going to be you. You give yourself to us. And we pray that in that shepherding care, we would find all the comfort we need in Jesus' name.